You're listening to Lies and Half-Truths, tales written and performed by A.P. Weber. Last time, we gave you part one of The Propagandist in which a psychically unsettled freelance propaganda agent named Rhett Ellis is sent to find the mysterious folk singer and man of the people, Chester Reeves, before he can cause destabilizing damage to the placid, uniform landscape of political messaging. But on his way to the lawless mountain town of Littleton, Ellis is set upon by highwaymen. Will Ellis live long enough to find who he's looking for in Littleton? On this episode of Lies and Half-Truths, Part 2 of The Propagandist. But first, a short break. Stay with us. This episode of Lies and Half-Truths is brought to you by Arts Digital. Arts Digital is a graphic design and digital development studio. Go to artsdigital.co. Whenever I go to their website, I spend a few seconds just messing around with the homepage. I can't help myself. You'll see. There's mild amusement to be had. That's artsdigital.co. They'll give you pragmatism, if not propaganda. And now, part two of The Propagandist. The riders sped up to him, two of them side by side, black leather jackets whipping around their collars, goggles fastened like masks above the paisley handkerchiefs covering their faces. Ellis reached across his breast and drew the revolver from its holster, resting it on his lap. The riders forked and their engines boomed. They came up on either side of Ellis's sedan, but kept their eyes forward facing, like lions on the hunt, he thought. Ellis let off the gas, and the riders flew off down the winding road, disappearing around a bend. He released a held breath and set his pistol on the passenger seat. What the hell was Chester Reeves doing back out here? Sure, this was where he came from, but once you got out, why go back? It seemed impossible to believe that after causing so much trouble and disappearing from public life, he just went home to that mountain town where all those miners were out of work. Ellis cursed and put on the brakes. Ahead, two motorcycles stood in the road, blocking the entrance to one of those green steel bridges. One rider, wearing a blue handkerchief over his nose and mouth, leaned against his bike with a scattergun across his lap. 
The other, similarly masked with a red handkerchief, stood a few paces ahead, a stutter gun pointed toward Ellis's oncoming vehicle, the weapon's fat, round, oversized magazine hanging down like manhood writ large. The shoulder of the road was narrow and rugged here, nowhere to turn off or turn around, so Ellis coasted to a stop a few paces from the barrel of the automatic rifle being leveled at him. He glanced at the passenger seat, but knew better than to move his hand from the steering wheel. The forward gunman, masked in red, strafed left and came over to the driver's side window, his firearm ever threatening. Nice and easy, the gunman said. Take your left hand, place it out the window, and open the vehicle door from the outside. Ellis complied, muttering, Are you a cop? Just keep your mouth shut and get out, growled the gunman. Turn around, hands on the hood. As the red-masked biker patted Ellis down, eventually discovering his wallet, the other biker strutted over, scattergun on his shoulder, like a lazy duck hunter come to examine his kill. He bent in through the passenger side window and chuckled. Nice piece, he said, coming back out with the revolver in his hand. His voice sounded like the low, gentle purr of an idling motorcycle. What's it for? Ellis looked across the hood at the outlaw, trying to get a fix on his eyes through the goggles he still wore. He said, I never know until I need it. He could hear the gunman behind him going through his wallet, pulling out bills. The outlaw across the hood nodded at his cohort. Who is he? Says Bernard Hunt on the ID card. Wait, look at this, Low. He's got a liquor, vehicle, transport, and distribution license in here, too. Give, said Low and Ellis saw his wallet slide across the hood. Lowe tucked Ellis's revolver into his belt to examine the wallet. What's your story, pal? He said as he did this. Vice tax is killing me, Ellis shrugged. But, you know, if I gotta pay a highway tax every time I come out here, maybe I take my business elsewhere. Lowe lifted the goggles onto his forehead and regarded Ellis with narrow eyes. Business? There's no business around here but coal, and this mountain's tapped out, he said, before ducking back down into the passenger side window. Ellis heard the latch on the glove box click open. Perfect timing, Ellis thought, and he pressed the ruse. Come on, you know I'm not talking about coal. Lowe came back up and slapped the vehicle's registration on the hood. Paragon Auto Rentals, huh? He said, looking them over. From behind Ellis, the gunman said, That's the front business for the syndicate, Low. A lot of these guys are using them so as not to leave a paper trail. Low set his cold eyes on a point just above Ellis's shoulder and said, Pickle, do me a favor and shut the hell up about shit I already know. He pulled Ellis's gun from his belt and tossed it onto the passenger seat. And give Mr. Hunt his money back. Little Tim wasn't exactly what its name implied. It sprawled, albeit in sparse patches, about a dell beside the upper wandering river, climbing the mountainside in slanted shanties along ridges and in clearings. Several rusted and abandoned hopper cars sat amongst heavily overgrown grass alongside the railroad tracks. Most of the storefronts were boarded up, 
Automobiles, parked here and there, bore the appearance of dying leprous hippopotami with their flaking paint and groaning engines. But the motorcycles looked in good repair. The people of Littleton milled about in meager pods, bowed and stooped and limping, many old-timers wearing overalls and coughing with great visceral heaves into their pocket handkerchiefs. Children, likewise dressed in overalls and felt hats, dashed willy-nilly across side streets and down alleys, kicking empty tin cans and wielding knobby pine sticks like swords, dirt staining their brows and cheeks and tiny fingers. Only the leather-jacketed bikers walked tall, Young men with day-old stubble and hair around their ears. Ellis found the post office, a once-fine building, across from a once-fine city park. He killed the engine, looked at his wristwatch, and waited. No one so much as entered the building all day. A rusty postal truck arrived, unloaded and left. Around five in the evening, the post office got its first visitor. Ellis smiled reached for his revolver and jammed it into his shoulder holster. A youth in a leather jacket with a red paisley handkerchief had walked into the building. Ellis followed the young man and watched him stop in front of the very box in question, fish into his denim pants for the key, open it up and pull out an envelope. Seeing that, Ellis rushed him and stuck the barrel of his pistol in the biker's spine. Hey there, Pickle, Ellis said, leaning into his ear. Remember me? Pickle instinctively put his hands in the air and glanced back over his shoulder. Ain't never seen you before in my life, he said with deadpan irony. Fork over the envelope, Ellis commanded. Pickle slipped it behind his back. Ellis took it and tore it open with his teeth. A pile of at least 40 C-notes almost spilled out. Where's Reeves? Ellis said. Who? Ellis thumbed down the hammer on his pistol. That menacing click echoed in the empty post office hall. Give it up, kid. Come on, Pickle groaned. You don't think we really got Chester Reeves up here, do you? It's a scam, man. He ain't gonna play no show. Just some easy money, that's all. bit his lip. It made sense. Reeves was bound to still have kin in Littleton, someone who could convincingly impersonate him over post. They'd collect the advance payment and never deliver Reeves. Ellis cursed inwardly. This was a waste of time. On the one hand, the ministry had nothing to worry about from Reeves. No labor movement uprising, no riot, but that was a relief of burden for Ellis. Now how would he get back in with the Ministry of Propaganda? How would he get his life back? He knew Bree would have to show her superiors a successful op before they'd trust him again. This mission was shaping up to be a mere puff of smoke signifying nothing. How did he not see this coming? Perhaps he had lost his touch. His special talent for running operations. For knowing what to expect around each bend. The temptation tugged at him to call the biker a liar to disbelieve him based on the inconvenience of the story. But that wouldn't change the fact that it rang so true. Reeves wouldn't come back to this shantytown. Why would he? 
He lowered his pistol, shoved the envelope back in Pickles' jacket pocket, then patted him on the shoulder and walked out without saying a word. Maybe he could spin this, be the bearer of good news. He began mentally constructing his angle for his explanation to Bree. Something she could turn around and sell to her superiors. He wandered through the run-down park, thinking. Maybe he'd get a drink before heading back to the city. It's hard to pass up cheap, bootlegged liquor. But first, he'd call Bree. It took him a while to find a working vid phone. Ultimately, he had to find a pole and follow the wires until it led somewhere. The vid phone unit under the awning of a diner that, though run down, looked to still be operating. Ellis paid the fee and slipped Bree Fulcrum's card into the slot. He glanced around absently as the bell chimed through the line. Fulcrum, came the familiar voice through the speaker at his ear, but Ellis didn't reply. This is Agent Bree Fulcrum. Whom am I speaking to? Ellis was looking at a man. The man had cold, steel eyes set in a weathered face. A blue handkerchief hung around his neck. Hang it up, said the man in his engine hum voice. Ellis said, I'll call you back. And he did as he was told. Then he greeted his former assailant. Nice to see you again, Lo. Been talking to Pickle? As he said this, he reached into his coat with as much indifference as he could muster. I wouldn't do that if I were you, Lo said, taking a step closer. I got two inches on you and at least twenty pounds. Odds are, you'll be a smear on the pavement before you even get the hammer back. Ellis nodded, but his hand twitched under his coat, and that was all the provocation Lo needed. The biker moved fast. Ellis saw a splash of bursting light, and then the world went dark. This is one hell of a hangover, Ellis thought, but he couldn't remember the bender. His fingers tingled and he realized his hands were behind him. He must have fallen asleep on them. He was sitting up. How the hell did I get in this position? He's coming too. That voice. God damn it. Ellis groaned aloud and opened his blurry eyes to look around. The two bikers stood in front of him, arms folded, faces creased with menace. Lowe spoke up. How are you feeling, Mr. Hunt? Ellis gave him a punch-drunk smile. All I wanted was a smoke, brother. Lowe chuckled. You have to admire his cool. Ellis blinked in an effort to get his eyes to focus. He could see he was confined to a chair, and he could now feel the ropey fibers securing his hands behind his back. Pickle said, Yeah, he's a fed all right, but he was just looking for Reeves. I don't think this is the one we've been worried about. He seemed to be continuing a conversation they'd been having while Ellis was unconscious. Lowe sighed wearily. Yeah, maybe but let's not take any chances. You stay here and keep an eye on him. I'm gonna go dump his ride. We're close to something here, Lo, Pickle said, taking hold of the old biker's arm before he could leave. Let's not be too hasty to spill blood and put everything we've worked for at risk. Scowling, Lo regarded Ellis with a long, pensive look. Finally, he said, I don't know, kid. We're probably gonna have to do a little dirt tonight until we get that other thing going. That's the way it'll be for a while. And if you can't deal, maybe you should walk. And with that, Lo headed for the door, but paused before going out. I'll tell you what, kid. 
he said. If I see the big man on the way, I'll ask him what he thinks about the situation. Ellis was alone with Pickle. His eyes were clearing now. Around, he could see wood plank walls, rickety-looking wooden furniture, a potbelly stove. Out a window, pine needles cast sharp shadows in the waning evening light. Pickle went to one corner and sat down on a stool, staring at Ellis, as if formulating a question. When Pickle said nothing, Ellis spoke up. I expected to get more fight out of you when I held you up back in the post office. Pickle smirked at him. You had me at a disadvantage. True, but still, it got me thinking. Had I done the same to Lowe, he would have died before handing me that package. You know why? Pickle gave him an incredulous glare. Why? Because Lowe is a desperate man. But you're not. What's your point? These bikers are all desperate men. Out of work, no prospects. You're not doing a good job convincing me you're a criminal. I don't have to convince you of a damn thing, Pickle said, pulling out his red handkerchief as if presenting it as evidence. I held you up this very afternoon, remember? Yeah, I remember. I remember how you held that stutter gun, like you were very familiar with it. The way you walked, sidestepping, never taking the sights off my forehead. You must have served, right? Of course I served. I wasn't old enough to fight the Reds, but hell yeah, I served. What of it? The feds love recruiting from the military, Ellis said. Pickle stared at him for a second, then laughed. All my brothers in the Littleton Motorcycle Club served. You think we're all feds? No, just the one who followed standard protocol for confronting a suspect in a vehicle. You're a cop. You're getting a paycheck. And if you've ever been hungry, it was a long time ago. It's obvious you're not one of them. If you think your brothers don't suspect, you're kidding yourself. Pickle thought for a moment, scratching at the stubble on his cheek. Finally, he said, And who are you? If you're convinced I'm an undercover federal agent, why not let me know what your angle is? Ellis shrugged his shoulders as best he could. Happily, Rhett Ellis, I'm a propaganda contractor. The ministry's afraid of what'll happen if Chester Reeves comes out of retirement. Riots, revolution, but you and I both know that's not going to happen. So there's no point in me still being here. Come on, kid. Just let me go. And blow my cover? Sorry, pal. I'm in deep here. Blow your cover? Ellis shot back. If you hadn't told Lo I stuck you up, we wouldn't be in this position. You could have just let me go. At this, Pickle stood and leveled a finger at Ellis. I was under strict orders not to open that package. You tore it open. I couldn't bring it to Lowe like that. Look, Mr. Ellis, I'm sorry, but I thought he would have just laid a beating down on you. Better you than me. Come on, Pickle. You're an agent. Improvise. You don't know how to forge a postal stamp on an envelope? Vice Ministry just ain't what it used to be. The agents like you. Well, it's too late now. So you're just going to let Lo plug me? Pickle sucked in a meditative breath. I'll think of something. Just hang tight. Sure, Ellis said, and decided to go silent. Whatever this Fed's credentials were, he clearly couldn't be trusted to think his way out of a sticky situation. He's probably the kind that just follows orders. Ellis would have to come up with a plan himself. Pickle paced the room, clawing at the back of his shaggy head in thought. Gradually, it grew dark outside. 
Finally, Pickle said, I guess I should tell you I lied back there in the post office. What do you mean? Reeves. He's here. Ellis cursed. Great. That's weird, right? Pickle said, stopping his pacing to stare down at Ellis. Propaganda is looking for a person, and Vice doesn't say anything? Again, Ellis did his best effort at a shrug. You're new, kid. It's like this. We're all just cogs in this machine. You, me, our superiors. We're all just pieces of a big, clunky mess of gears. And the cogs? They don't talk to each other. That's not their job. They just gotta keep turning so the machine keeps running. And what does the machine do? Ellis scoffed and went silent. Pickle stared at him for a while. Then he said, So, do you know? Know what? What the machine does. The question took Ellis off guard. He had meant it to be rhetorical. But in fact, this was the question consuming far too much of his thought. He knew the answer, and for the first time, it came to him without bringing along that crippling panic. If he survived this, there was a chance he could go on living and working, see Bree again, help keep the peace in trying times. But life, life was enough. So he spoke the truth to Pickle, without fear. Nothing, he said. The machine does nothing. After that, Lowe returned. He slouched into a chair and closed his eyes. The automobile's in the river. The big guy's on his way. Said he wanted to see him. Pickle nodded and glanced at Ellis with a deadpan look that told the propaganda agent he was on his own. His fate was in the hands of another. The big man. The boss. When the man walked in, Ellis recognized him immediately. Tall, barrel-chested, clad in flannel, long beard, deep wrinkles upon his brow and around his eyes. But for all those intended or natural disguises, Ellis knew him. Mentally, Ellis saw a lanky young man who had come down from the peaks with his guitar many years ago and returned. He knew he was looking at the aged Chester Reeves. listening to the propagandist part two on the lies and half truths podcast this story was written and performed by a.p weber the music was provided by das verlin and josiah martins wrote the theme song meg weber produced the show along with me your host a.p weber i'd like to invite you to get in touch with us you can email your feedback to truths and half truths at gmail.com and of course, we're on Facebook, and my Twitter handle is at APWeber. In particular, 
We'd be interested in hearing from other writers who want their work to be featured on a future episode. The email again is truthandhalftruths at gmail.com. Also, please consider reviewing this show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you found it. Thanks. On the next episode of Lies and Half-Truths, the conclusion of The Propagandist, in which, perhaps, some other obscure pop culture reference hijacks the plot, could happen. You won't know unless you listen.